Well, good morning. It's a, a privilege to be with you. Before we head into our message today, uh, let's pray. Um, <clears throat> I want to ask you to pray in particular for a dear sister in Christ sub- struggling at this moment in a deep and dark time. And I'm just going to leave it at that for now. Um, the Lord knows. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to you. We thank you that you sustain us. We thank you that you so care for us that we can come to you. We can lift our burdens to you. And you hear and you care. You're compassionate towards us. You're merciful towards us. And so we lift up our sister this morning. We pray that you would sustain her, that you would remind her of your presence in her life, your, that you would give her the comfort needed in this hour. Give her much grace. May we, as a church, in the days and months to come, may we surround her with love. And we pray this for your honor and glory in Christ's name. Amen. We press on this morning into Matthew chapter 19. Chapter 18 dealt with life within the body of Christ and how we were to respond to one another in a multitude of circumstances, how we were to receive one another in humility, how we were to extend that humility to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, I hope that making our way through those, that chapter was helpful to, to each of you. Allow me this morning to begin by just reading our text. Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of, of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, And he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to, uh, and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Divorce is a a topic that our culture today desperately needs teaching from the Lord on. Divorce is 
not only in our world permitted, it is, it seems, expected. Marriage has this free bailout plan as no-fault divorce is available and, in fact, easy to obtain. There was, at one time in our history as a nation, a high regard for marriage and, and, and a certain disdain for divorce. But those sentiments have long been forgotten. Divorce rates among professing Christians sadly, are as high as, and in fact, in, uh, according to some studies, even higher than divorce rates in the world. In our world, marriage doesn't seem to hold much value. And so, the fact that we see this same trend in the church tells us that something is deeply wrong. Now, we, we think that divorce is, is some new phenomenon, but that's simply not true. Divorce has been a problem for thousands of years. We read of divorce among the Hebrews, for example, in the wilderness between their departing from Egypt and their entering the promised land, and we'll look to some degree at that text today. And so we see that this is nothing new. What is somewhat new to our culture is the fact that the moral underpinnings of God's will in this particular area have been almost completely eroded. And uh, that, 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 that understanding that comes from a Christian worldview uh, of marriage in particular has diminished in our culture. Those underpinnings eroded so much so to the point of Marriage is almost today a liability rather than a blessing. The blessing God created it to be. But in Jesus' day, divorce was rampant as well. The only difference, really, was the fact that in Jesus' day, a man could divorce his wife, and as we'll see, for near any cause, but a, a wife could not initiate divorce against her husband. That restraint is not in place in our day. A man or a woman can make determination to divorce their marriage partner and break the bond once entered into through the covenant of marriage. It's wide open. The passage begins, now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. This narrative comment offered by Matthew here is of great significance to us in understanding this passage and what's going on here. Jesus had been teaching the Twelve, a theme which we will see continue, but we see here they're, they're on this journey toward Jerusalem. Uh, we, we have seen this direction from, for, for some time now. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus and his disciples left the region of Caesarea Philippi, back through Galilee, and Jesus instructed his disciples why they were to go to Jerusalem. He, he was to go in order that he would suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the elders, that he would die, and on the third day that he'd be raised. And so this is their journey. 
toward the cross. And here, uh, we see that uh, they're not on a direct path. They've made a little, a little detour on the trip to Jerusalem. Here, they cross over the Jordan to this region known as Judea beyond the Jordan. This, a particular territory that is under the control of Herod, the Tetrarch. And this is going to become important for us. As always, we see large crowds that are following Jesus, and, and, and the note provided here that Jesus had compassion on these and healed them, as he did near everywhere he was. Here in this region, as they're closing in on Jerusalem in this journey, we see the Pharisees enter the picture. And now, this is not completely new to us. We've seen this before. Recall the beginning of chapter 16, the Pharisees, the Sadducees came, and they came with a particular purpose in mind. They came to test Jesus. And, and, and they weren't looking to see if he was genuine. They were looking to find fault in him. They were specifically looking for something that they could use against him to report to those in Jerusalem to destroy him. And so this isn't new. But here, closing in on Jerusalem, drawing nearer to Jerusalem, they are advancing here, as it were, on the Pharisees' home territory. And verse 3 says, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And again, Testing here, not seeking information, uh, not seeking to, to find if Jesus was genuine. Simply seeking evidence by which to discredit and destroy him. But look at the question that's asked. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And the testing here is, is, is posing a question of significance that they expect Jesus cannot satisfactorily answer, um, which will place him in the crosshairs, as it were, of the audience, rather than being esteemed by them. Divorce. The desire here is to turn the crowd from loving Jesus to hate him. Now, this, this is a topic, a good topic to use here to try to sway this crowd because divorce in this particular day was rampant. And men's attitude toward divorce in particular have, have been pretty much, uh, you know, cemented by the freedom they are given in this area. And so the Pharisees here, they're, they're seeking to use selfish desires to turn men against Jesus. But there's more. Herod uh, is in control of this particular territory. Jesus in the, and his twelve are now in this region controlled by Herod. Recall what happened to John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was no friend of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In fact, you'll remember that John actually called these, those of, of, of these parties that came and witnessed his baptism a brood of vipers. You sons of serpents. Like, that's not flattery. And, uh, 
but because John was esteemed by the people as being a prophet of God, the Pharisees couldn't do anything uh, to, to, uh, against him. But something did happen to John. He preached directly against the adultery of Herod, who had taken his brother Philip's wife to be his own. And this was the reason that John was arrested by Herod, and it is the reason John was put to death by Herod. And Jesus is now standing in that very same territory with that very same ruler, and the Pharisees are hoping that they can stir things to the point that Jesus might also arouse the anger of Herod by the same means as John and bring about his downfall at Herod's hands. And so Jesus, let's talk about divorce. Uh, Divorce within uh, Jewish society had become so easy, so casual, that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. Of course, now there were some in the culture that took a hardline stance on this. One particular school of Jewish thought, uh, a particularly small minority view, said that divorce was only an option when a matter of marital unfaithfulness uh, was involved. But that was not the view held by most. That was certainly not the view held by most men and definitely not the view held by most Pharisees. Any cause. Translation, any cause. If, if a man's wife embarrassed him in front of his friends, divorce. If she didn't have supper ready when he came home, or if she spoiled supper in preparing the meal, or if a husband simply lost favor for his wife, if a husband found another to be more pleasing, for any reason a man could put away his wife. In fact, it had gotten to the point that husbands didn't even need to give a reason for divorce. Any cause would do. I I like the New English Bible translation which says this, on any and every ground. That's the, the point of the text here. Jesus, is it okay, is it lawful for a man on any and every ground to divorce his wife? And he answered, verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Have you not read? And then pointing to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Of course, the the Jews would understand there is no break between those texts. That's one text, one creation story. And I ask you to notice that Jesus validates Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as being true in exactly what they present. Have you not read? Wait a minute, these are the experts in the Bible. Of course they've read. In fact, these experts have, minim- have, have, have memorized at the very least the first five books of the Bible memorized. Have you not read? What an insult that is. 
to these Pharisees. But notice Jesus' response here is rooted not in the law, but in creation itself. Male and female. Notice both are in the singular. One man, one woman. This is the creation order. There is no third option. And I I also ask you to take, take note of the fact that Jesus seems to believe that at the beginning, this is how it took place. He testifies to the truth of literal six-day creation as he points us to read the Genesis account and believe what it says. Also, interesting to make a, a point here, Genesis 2 and verse 24 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Moses is the human author of Genesis. God made man, and according to Genesis 2, God took from that man one of his ribs, and from man God made woman. And he made woman for man. And God presented that woman to man the first marriage. This, of course, where we get the idea of a father giving his daughter away in marriage. And Adam responds here as our father gives him his wife Eve. And he responds to this gift with these words. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. To which then Moses offers a narrative statement in verse 24. In other words, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. These are not God's words. These are Moses' words. This is a narrative comment. This is not a quote of God speaking, if you understand what I'm getting at. Yet, here in our passage in Matthew 19, Jesus attributes those words to him who created man and woman from the beginning. You see, the narrative comment of Moses is moved along by the Holy Spirit inerrantly recorded, and is thus the very Word of God. Woman came from man. Man holds fast his wife. The two become one flesh. And and so marriage is really reuniting what was meant to be one flesh from the beginning. Woman is rejoined to the flesh from which she was originally taken. It requires a supernatural work to separate her from Adam's flesh to create her, and it requires a supernatural work to rejoin them together as one. Verse 6 says, And so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
And the Hebrew word used here uh, in Genesis 2 and verse 24, translated to hold fast or to cleave to his wife, literally translated would mean two items cemented together. They are become now one item. They are now inseparable, humanly speaking. If you try to separate the two pieces, glued together, cemented together, as they now are, as they have been joined together as one, trying to separate the two will now not end up with two individuals, but with one destroyed body. You end up wrecking both. A couple of noteworthy comments. It was not good for man to be given another man. It's not Adam and Steve. That is outside of the creation order. And and yes, it is detestable to the Lord. Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, right? Yes, he did. Read his testimony to the creation order given here in Matthew 19, which gives acceptability to only one union. One man, one woman, for life. Anything outside of that is sinful and is, in fact, an abomination to God. That is easy enough to see. If... It had been God's intent that Adam should pick and choose at any given moment what pleased him and to give him the option of putting away his wife. Then God would have created Adam and many women, but he didn't. That's not the creation order either. One man, one woman. I saw a news headline this past week. Uh, the, the story said, within one generation, they, the author of this piece of, of news predicted that polygamy or polymory would be perfectly acceptable and legal in our culture. What does God think of it? Well, read Matthew 19. And see what Jesus speaks of it. He's not okay with this. No, two become one. Not three, not six. Two become one. And the point of the union of the two into one is the idea that as they are now joined together, they are, these two individuals, no longer what they were. They are now bound in the closest and most intimate of human relationships. And notice, man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife. This signifies the very height of, 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 marriage, of the marriage relationship above all other human relationships. This union in, is, in fact, indissoluble. To to break the marriage union is to rip apart one single body. Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And listen, that's not a request on his part. That's not a petition. 
Jesus is not requesting that man not seek to separate the two. This is a command. As R.T. France states, to break up a marriage is to usurp the function of the God by whose creative order it was set up and who has decreed that it shall be permanent, one flesh union. Now, what Jesus has presented here sounds a lot like a prohibition of divorce to these who are there for the purpose of finding something wrong with his teaching. To which they respond to him, verse 7, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And I want to just say, as you read that statement, you should maybe read it with this tone. Oh yeah? Well then why did Moses allow? You see, that's, that's exactly what they're getting at here. What they're doing here, we need to see these are positioning Jesus against Moses, the giver of the law. In their eyes, the greatest of the prophets. In reality, it's Jesus who is the giver of the law. Moses simply presented Jesus' law to the people of Israel. These want the people to see that Jesus is contradicting Moses here. Yet, in reality, there is no such contradiction, just a willful misunderstanding of God's Word. A willful misunderstanding. The truth is, sinful man will always twist God's Word to make provision for sin. Which is exactly what they do. Verse 8, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, the understanding of divorce here that these Jews present to Jesus was one from a passage of Moses found in Deuteronomy in chapter 24. Let me just read that passage. Chapter 24 and verses 1 through 4 says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination to the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, the issue here in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is not at all addressing whether or not divorce is allowed. That's not its purpose but rather addressing the fact that divorce does happen. Why? Well, because men are sinful. And men give in to the desires for sin. And as divorce does happen, Deuteronomy 24 deals with some of the reality of divorce. But it does not in any way excuse or prescribe divorce. John MacArthur uh, rightly states this, 
The focus of the passage is not the question of whether or not divorce is permitted. It does not provide for divorce, much less command it. It is rather the statement of a very narrow, specific law that was given to deal with the matter of adultery. It shows how improper divorce leads to adultery, which results in defilement. Through Moses, God recognized and permitted divorce under certain circumstances when it was accompanied by a certificate, but he did not thereby condone or command divorce. God's permission for divorce was but another accommodation of his grace to human sin. Moses allowed you, due to the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you. And we see, even in this passage in Deuteronomy, from which they took their understanding, that it was in in the case of a man finding indecency about his wife. Now, it, 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 it is a word that could mean just about any kind of improper, shameful, indecent behavior which is unbecoming of a wife. And so promiscuity, uh, presenting herself to be looked at and lusted over by other men, but it can't mean adultery. Because we know that the penalty for adultery was actually death. The adulterer was to be taken out and stoned. And so the word here has to mean something of unfaithfulness which fell short of the act of adultery itself. Deuteronomy 24 is not so much given to show that divorce is permitted, but rather to show the very evil of it. Notice the progression in it. If a man finds indecency in his wife and he writes her a certificate of divorce, this then is a man releasing his wife from the marriage. It is, if we consider the truth of marriage as the two becoming one flesh, then then divorce is a man cutting off a part of his own flesh and casting it aside. The certificate given here is really a protection for the woman, without which she would not be able to remarry. And in that particular culture, that in itself would be a death sentence, as she would have no means of supporting herself. And as a woman of shame, in a, in a culture all about honor, she would not have received help from those around her, because they would have seen her as receiving what she has deserved. But the Jews tended to focus on the words of Deuteronomy 24 that say when a man takes a wife and then she finds no favor in his eyes. No need to keep reading. All that is needed is for a man to no longer favor his wife. You see? Or if we consider the second husband in this particular passage, it says this, and, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, right? So all that's required is that he hate her. Okay, I hate you. Here you go. Divorce. Get out. That's all it takes, says the Jews which is the equivalent of a testimony to divorce, this certificate, evidence she is no longer bound 
to her husband and is now eligible to remarry. Again, MacArthur states this, In God's eyes, therefore, the granting of a certificate did not in itself make a divorce legitimate. Far from approving divorce, Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 is a strong warning about it. The passage suggests or perhaps assumes that a divorce on proper grounds accompanied by a certificate was permitted. It does not offer a divine provision for divorce, but rather shows that divorce often leads to adultery. Even on the grounds of adultery, divorce was tolerated in the law of Moses only as a gracious alternative to capital punishment that, adult, that adultery justly deserved. Of course, we know that marriage is a divine institution, and it is one that is under great attack in our day. And it's not under attack because people don't like religion, and it's not under attack because people are opposed to the church. It is under attack because men and women who are not believers hate God. And, and marriage is a gift from God to man. In the beginning, God made man. He placed him in, a, in, a, in a, a perfect environment and made for him one woman. Perfect to be his helpmate. Compatible to him. Complementary. We, we saw similar teaching to this in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. There... Jesus' teaching on divorce came right on the heels of Jesus' teaching on adultery. And so we should see these two as, as, as connected. Sex is from God. We often treat sex as dirty, but it isn't at all. Unless, unless it is used outside of the context for which God gave it. That context is defined by creation's design. It is the fullest expression of the marital union of oneness, and therefore the intimacy of this blessing of sex is not to be shared with any other human than your husband or your wife. When it goes outside of that God-given parameter, it is sin. And, and sin causes all kinds of breakdowns including marital. On the surface, it appears that when sex occurs outside of the marriage bond, that that is then uh, permissible to divorce. And certainly Jesus makes it clear here, as well as, as in our passage in Matthew 19, where there is adultery, dissolving of the marriage is permitted, but even then, it is not God's desire. It is but a provision, Jesus says, even in that case, because of the hardness of your heart. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus refers to this same passage in Deuteronomy 24, speaking of the law. He says this, It was also said, and so he's pointing back to the law of Moses, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. If a man or a woman has been found to be unfaithful, then their marriage partner has the right to divorce them. 
Yes, according to Jesus, that is true. However, it is also true that only a hard heart leads to divorce. And so, if the adulterous partner repents, a soft heart of forgiveness and seeking uh, uh, restoration, seeking reconciliation, a soft heart forgives if there is repentance. Only a hard heart would carry this through with divorce in that case. Remember the teaching from Matthew chapter 18 on the need of, of extending forgiveness. How many times? If you even have to ask, there's a problem. And so if there's repentance, we forgive. But on the other hand, if the adulterous partner does not repent, it is permissible to divorce and in this case, Again, do the hard heart of the one in adultery who is choosing his adulterous affair over his marriage. And and so, if you divorce, even if it's on grounds permitted, even if there be adultery, divorce is pursued because of a hard heart in all cases in either one party or the other. And listen, Jesus doesn't seem to view that as a good thing. Within the kingdom, recall the instruction of the last chapter on kingdom etiquette. Within the kingdom, divorce should simply not happen. We, as kingdom citizens, take on the attitude of our Father regarding sin and regarding divorce. God hates divorce. We can say this unequivocally. Matthew chapter, uh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 13 says this. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because He no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord." the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And so if God hates divorce, which he clearly says he does, then the man who divorces his wife engages in what God hates. I mean, you know, it's it's one thing for us to to, to take the, the, the position as Christians that God hates homosexuality, that to engage in homosexuality is to engage in something that God hates. And that's true. But let's be consistent. God also hates divorce. And so to engage in it is to engage in something that He hates. 
Let, let me just highlight that one statement here in Malachi 2. It says, But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. You see, God's Spirit is never, ever leading any man or woman to ever divorce. And this is a real problem today within the church where we find divorce rates so high. That is a problem when we claim to be a people indwelt by the Spirit of God. God's Spirit never leads any to divorce. Not even in marital unfaithfulness. So often today, I I have heard it, and likely you have too, people will claim that they believe God is leading them to divorce because they're not happy. It ain't so. It ain't so. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Divorce is a denial of God's will, a a destruction of God's work. Divorce is a product of sin in every single case, and God hates it. He does not command it, He does not endorse it, He does not bless it. The Pharisees simply misread and misapply Deuteronomy 24 to defend their own ideas about and ease access to divorce. They actually believe that Moses commanded a man to divorce his wife. In reality, as kingdom citizens, our attitude regarding both adultery and divorce should be like that of our father. He hates both. Yet, in his graciousness towards his people, he is forgiving and he is patient in love. We have one particular book in the Bible that shows us of our Father's attitude towards his people in these areas. The book of Hosea clearly demonstrates our Father's heart. And we are to look like him. In this book... God instructs the prophet Hosea to marry a harlot who is consistently unfaithful to him. And Hosea is commanded repeatedly to go and to take her again to be his wife, to forgive her. In fact, in one dramatic portion, as his wife sells herself in prostitution, Hosea is instructed to go to the market and buy her and take her again to be his wife, to be restored to her. He is to forgive her. And it is a picture of God's forgiveness and God's patience towards his people. A beautiful picture it is. When we consider how many times we sin, we commit spiritual adultery against our Christ, our great husband, Now, we know, of course, that the book of Hosea is a picture of God's love for His people, but it also instructs us on what a godly attitude toward even a wayward, unfaithful marriage partner should be. We are to seek reconciliation and be ever so willing to forgive and be restored. It doesn't mean turning a blind eye to sin but rather reflecting the very character of our God in extending the same kind of forgiveness 
that he himself extends to us. Within a marriage, there must be a forgiving love and a restoring grace on, on, parts, on, on the parts of both the husband and the wife. Marriage is supposed to reflect our union with the Lord, and only this kind of love makes marriage a proper symbol of God's forgiving love and restoring grace. To pursue a divorce, then, is to go against everything that God intends marriage to both be and to symbolize. The Pharisees, now they turned Deuteronomy 24 into a teaching about paperwork. The paperwork needed to be filed in order to escape from a marriage that no longer suited a man's desires. Well, God did not in any way intend that to be the takeaway of Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus clarifies this here saying that for any man to divorce his wife without proper cause and marries another is for him to engage in adultery. Moreover, it is to cause her, should she remarry, to also commit adultery. In other words, God is going to hold that man accountable for his own sin and for the fact that his wife goes and marries another and has sexual relations with another, committing adultery herself. God is going to hold that man accountable for that. In fact, the man who subsequently remarries uh, marries the, the, the divorced woman is now also guilty of adultery. And the man that divorced his wife will be held, guilt, held guilty for that as well. And so Jesus does say, except on the ground of sexual immorality. This is the only grounds of divorce that God accepts. And the word used here is the word porneia, which refers to any illicit sexual intercourse, whether, whether or not either of the parties is married. It would include adultery, but it would also include any other, many other kinds of immoralities, such as incest, prostitution, homosexuality, bestiality. It could be used of near any sexual sin, but in the context here, Jesus is speaking of marriage. And so the pernea in view here is that of any sexual engagement outside of the marriage covenant. Anything outside of to become one. And Jesus is not approving of divorce here, even on the grounds of adultery. But he does leave that door open to the marriage partner who has been betrayed by an adulterous spouse. Yet even in this, we must see that divorce is not God's desire. Even when you may have been betrayed in this way, God's desire is always reconciliation because that kind of forgiveness demonstrates the love of our God for us and is a reflection of who our God is. In the case of adultery, Jesus makes it clear that Divorce is not leading to causing the partner to commit adultery. No, adultery has already happened. That's already taken place. And Jesus does recognize that divorce for this reason could happen. And this is not an approval, but rather a concession to sin and a gracious provision for those who are innocent 
of defiling the marriage. It is allowed on this sole ground, and yet even here, it is hardness of heart that leads to divorce. A Godward heart is one that longs for and seeks forgiveness and restoration. The only other grounds we find in the Bible for divorce, legitimate grounds, come from Paul in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7. And this having to do with an unbelieving marriage partner. If an unbelieving spouse wants to leave, since there can be no fellowship between light and darkness, if an unbelieving spouse wants to leave, let them leave. The believing partner is not to pursue divorce, but if the unbeliever in the marriage seeks it, give it to them. It's that simple. God wants godly unions to represent Him because marriage is a picture of God and of His love for His bride, the church. Verse 10, the disciples said to Him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. You see, the disciples, they, they catch on to the problem here, don't they? If this be so, and the culture has been so wrong about marriage and the ease of divorce, I mean, come on, entering into an unescapable union like that, well, wouldn't it just be better to remain single? They realize the challenge of marriage. Marriage is costly, right? It's not easy. There is no escape hatch, Jesus is saying. And if there's no easy way out, maybe it's better not to enter it in the first place. Well, of course, this neglects the truth that marriage is first and foremost a gift and a blessing to man and woman. Now, I can speak to my own personal experience and testify that, that marriage is costly. It costs self. We need to give up self. We need to be giving of self. But I can also testify marriage is so worth it. It is so worth it. It is good. It is a gift among the greatest of gifts God has ever given man. I know my wife is a gift to me. Verse 11 says, But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. And Jesus' response here is, look, not everybody can handle this. Yeah, you're right. It's hard. Um, and, and, but, but the answer is not, it would be better not to engage in marriage. You see, for most men, God's plan includes marriage. Now, there are some, of course, and here he talks of eunuchs. Some who are eunuchs from birth. Clearly a picture of one born with a con congenital deformity, leaving them with underdeveloped sexual capacity, un undeveloped sexual parts, unable to engage in normal human sexual engagement. Some are made eunuchs at the hands of men. And so in this particular day, for example... Many kingdoms in that day, the king's harem, 
would have had male guards, and to keep the guards from defiling the women of the harem, the guards would have been castrated. Eunuchs at the hands of men. These are, again, unable to engage in normal sexual relations. But what of those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven? Now, we know this is not castration. That is detestable to the Lord. The eunuchs in the Old Testament, in the, in the law of Moses, were not permitted to enter the temple for this reason. Men don't castrate themselves as a show of devotion to God in, in the Christian worldview. As some of the idol-worshiping cultures did, no, this is simply a picture of one who has taken a vow to remain single for the very purpose of serving the Lord. Now, not everybody is able to receive that. The Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7 talks about this as a gift from God, the gift of singleness. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Look, it, it, it's good to remain single, but only, only, Paul says, if you can do so without burning with passion and lust, if that be the case, remain single. That's fine. Serve the Lord. That's a good thing. But if not, get married. Get married. Marriage is a blessing from the Lord. Yet as with anything of real value, it is costly. No one who has entered a marriage union will tell you that it's easy. There is no such thing as a perfect marriage. Two sinners joining together to become one. Well, that's much like our own individual lives in Christ, isn't it? We have the old man who is put to death as we come to Christ and a new man formed within us. And yet, what do, what do we know of this new man? He's constantly at war with the desires of the flesh. Constantly battling. Romans chapter 7 tells us this. Galatians chapter 5. The things of the Spirit are contrary to the things of the flesh. They are warring against each other continually in the life of a believer. Well, this is exactly the same thing in marriage. Two sinners bumping up against each other. There's going to be conflict. But marriage is good, just like the new creation in us is good. Now, Cheryl and I know this well. But I know for certain the Lord is at work in us to be able to tell you we've been together for 38 years and still going strong. Listen, only God can do that. Only God can do that. John MacArthur writes this, The two key attributes in a successful marriage are self-denial and self-giving, both of which are contrary to human nature, but made possible to Christians through the Holy Spirit. The husband and wife who are walking in the Spirit will be walking in unselfishness and forgiving, restoring love that always puts the other first. 
You know, you know when we get in trouble in marriage is when we don't put the other first. When, when we don't live in, in this self-denying, self-giving spirit, that's when we get in trouble, isn't it? We are not without our faults in these areas. But the Lord is growing us. He is moving us in our marriages. He, he does so to make us more like Christ. God sanctifying us. And a part of how He does this is by using each of, of the two now become one. Using each to push the other, move the other as it were, toward Christ-likeness. Now, for us, we have a long way to go. I can tell you with no reluctance, it is completely 100% worth the cost. It is worth the trials of marriage. It is a great gift of the Lord, one that brings much joy and produces much fruit. Marriage is good. It is worth every bit of fight you have to continue in until death do you part. It is worth it because this is God's plan and it is a very good plan. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for teaching us on the importance of marriage, your plan from creation, one man, one woman joined for life, a blessing to us from your very hand. And yet, even, even as Clay read this morning from Deuteronomy 18, we need reminding that though the world around us participate in this divorce, this breaking of the two become one, we are not to engage in doing so. That is not your plan for your people. Father, we thank you for your presence in our lives. We thank you that by your power, <coughs> you sustain marriages. We pray for marriages that are struggling, that you would give much grace, that you would cause man and woman in those marriages to be humble, to submit to you, to love you, to reflect you in their marriages. We, we all need this, Father. We need your grace. And so we, we thank you for marriage. We pray that you would continue to uphold us in our marriages. And we pray it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.